0: Thank you. Welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2 cr nationwide on the Community Radio Network. I'm Kevin Suarez and
1: coming up on the program... I think it's important for people to uh, feel empowered that they have uh, the potential to actually make a difference in society and in the world.
0: With climate emergencies creating calls for climate action, we look at the ways, both big and small, that businesses can be empowered to create a sustainable environment. Also on the show...
2: Effectively, during the middle of the day, when many people are at work, the amount of solar being produced on the roof of all these houses is more than the electricity being consumed in the houses. So the network has trouble with that.
0: The success of rooftop solar is starting to create localised problems for the electrical network in some areas of Australia, and we look at the latest emissions targets to find out how this may affect whether we reach them. Stay tuned, we have all of this coming up on On The Money. But first, the hospitality and tourism sectors have been hit in recent weeks, as tourists are choosing not to visit locations such as Chinese restaurants, and travel and tourism has also been affected worldwide. Over the past few months, fear has been one of the primary factors affecting our world's economies. Due to ongoing current events, tourists have been choosing to avoid certain locations due to their association with an ongoing issue. Destinations such as the Blue Mountains in New South Wales have seen dwindling numbers due to their proximity to large bushfires within the region, even though it hasn't affected access between most tourist attractions and the nearby city of Sydney. Similarly, Chinese restaurants have reportedly had less diners due to the influence of the COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus. The virus has also influenced tourist migrations around the world and has even raised concerns it could cause the cancellation of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Professor Ralph Christopher Bayer a professor of economics at the University of Adelaide, elaborated on how influential fear is on the economy.
3: Uh, it's, It's huge. So if you think about an economy working, depends on how people make economic decisions. And if people fear something, they will not do this. And if economic activity, because of fear, doesn't happen, that otherwise would happen, the impact can be quite large.
0: But it's not only the modern economy that is influenced by fear, as irrational behavior has historically had a massive impact on the economy.
3: Think about episodes in in economic history. um, Lots of them were driven by irrationality. Sometimes irrational beliefs about how good something could be. Think about booms in, on stock market and so on, leading to busts later on. But even, but also uh, might be driven by, by irrational fears, as we see right now, that um, regions where we had bushfires, that people just don't go there anymore.
0: Bushfires have caused an incalculable amount of damage around Australia. And even if they have been put out by firefighters, a dent in the economy still lingers with some tourists still unsure about visiting affected areas. Professor Bayer explained why some people are influenced by current events when choosing where to visit.
3: There are a few different reasons. So one, one reason might be a fear of danger. So if you think about, if you, if you want to go somewhere, what do you know about dangers there? Not much. So typically you don't have any idea and so you go. However, if something happens there, like a bushfire or outbreak of a virus, then this is quite clear in your mind, and therefore you might revise the belief probability that this region is dangerous, and typically you might overestimate that probability.
0: Today, COVID-19 is another factor influencing how people are spending their money with some Chinese restaurants reportedly bringing in less customers than usual. In Sydney's Chinatown, there's less people patronising the local restaurants. One cashier for a local restaurant, Bai, explains why.
4: People just uh, a little bit scary go to like the public area. It's not only for our business. I think it's like, it's like a chain. A lot, of, yeah, a lot of industries will be in fact, actually.
0: However, she says it's not just fear that's keeping customers away.
4: Because we're just looking in Chinatown, which you have a lots of overseas students, especially from China. And uh, because uh, yeah, I don't know it's like the blocking policies, a lot of students can't, won't come back. So it's kind of worry., yeah, it's a kind of a little bit infections uh, our business. So, yeah, less, less, less customers.
0: She remains optimistic, saying that while the virus is having an effect on local businesses, it may not be long term.
4: We didn't receive any bad news at the moment because I think the situation controlled could be very well. And uh, we don't know, we don't, we don't find it like a breakout that seriously, to be honest. We just find it's like most of the thing is the panic and uh, yeah, anxious about this this awareness this in reality i think it'll be okay
0: but how can the economy bounce back professor Bayer theorizes on what can be done to encourage more people to visit affected tourist attractions
3: it's not easy so there there are a few things i think one can do one is clearly to is a kind of marketing, but a marketing that provides information that provides information that okay no right now there is really no danger of for example a kangaroo island having another bushfire at this point in time that 's one thing the other thing is probably more effective and if you th- if you think about the bushfire season, there has been so much Sympathy for Australia all around the world and people donating and so on. If you tell people the best way of helping is actually to come and visit and see what has happened and understand what has happened and to spend your money there, that might be quite effective.
0: Professor Ralph Christopher Bayer, a professor of economics at the University of Adelaide ending that report. <laughs> the money, making mountains out of moolahs. analysis by ClimateWorks Australia indicates that we will be able to transition to net zero emissions by 2050. The target also announced by ALP leader Anthony Albanese. There will be a body of work to be done, however, for our national grid to accommodate the changing source of power generation. Roderick Chambers asked Tony Wood, Director of Energy Programs at Grattan Institute, where the challenges are likely to come from in order to achieve this target.
2: The bits unusual in Australia is the rooftop solar. The combination of that together with large-scale solar and wind means that we might very well see a situation where we've got more than 40% renewables by 2030. Now, that's the, that number is what... Um, behind the government's own projections that the electricity sector is well on track to achieve its proportionate share of the current government's 2030 target of a 26 to 28% reduction in emissions.
5: Of course with the pricing models that we have at the moment it's fine and well if you have a rooftop to put your solar panels on but if you're in high density housing you don't have roofs so is is there anything going to be done to try and smooth that out a bit?
2: Look, that, that, you put your finger on a very important issue, Rod, and I think that uh, has been a lot of focus of attention because there are a range of reasons why people not, might not have the... Um, putting aside the money, I mean, because at the moment, um, whilst it's not quite as attractive today as it was a few years ago, um, in fact, the fact, the cost of the systems has kept coming down, um, uh, means you can still get a payback in a reasonable period i mean by reasonable i would sort of say if you can get a payback and then be making money after that in about five or six years seven years that's on average the amount of time people spend in a house so you're ahead before you move if you're in these other situations, whether you're in a rental property, maybe in a house, some people have even have heritage protection on their houses; they can't put solar on the roof. You may be in an apartment, etc. There's obviously a range of restrictions there. Now, the best you can hope for, if you're in an apartment, for example, is you may be able to sign up and support a a, a solar or wind farm nearby. Um, and there 's been some of those done um, there, is, there is a lot more work being done on rental properties. Um, the trick here with rental properties, whether or not you 're in a low income or a high income rental property uh, is that the, um, if you put in if you save your electricity save electricity by having solar on your roof, then the uh, occupant gets the benefit, but the occupant can 't pay for it because they don 't own the roof and so what the issue there is to introduce some new regulations to Enable the um, the owner of the building to finance putting on the solar on the roof and then to recover that from the tenant over the period of their lease
5: recently two the Andrews government in Victoria have requested release from the plan the combined grid plan so that they can re- introduce new renewables what 's all that about
2: well there's been the, the, the there's been a tension for now some time between the different ambitions of different governments around Australia, state and federal um, and territory governments in terms of what they want to do about renewable energy and lower emissions. And um, the challenge is to make sure that as we do increase the proportion of renewable energy, we can connect it all. Now, at the rooftop level, that means making sure that we don't have situations of developing and we have these becoming potentially risk in the suburbs, where the, effectively during the middle of the day, when many people are at work, the amount of solar being produced on the roof of all these houses is more than the electricity being consumed in the houses. So you end up with the the network has trouble with that because it becomes because these networks have always been designed around the concept of electricity moving, you know, from the centre to the houses rather than the other way around. So there's some big, significant technical problems that have to be resolved. There they're not. Incapable of being resolved technically, but there are additional complexity and some degree a bit of a cost that offsets the benefit of solar um, to ensure that the system remains stable. And of course, that's where the role of, of, of batteries can become very important. Now, at the larger scale, the issue is if we're going to build a whole lot of solar farms and wind farms, wind farms driven by any government policy, whether it's federal or state, then they're going to have to be connected to the grid. And the same way that you know, large coal-fired or gas-fired power stations in places like the Valley, for example, um, the transmission line that brings that power into the big through big transformers into the into our cities and towns, it has to be there. Now, that's already well if you want to tap your connect your solar farm or your wind farm into the existing grid structure. But if you're looking to build in part of, say, northwest Victoria, where we don't have this grid, or whether the, where the grid doesn't have much more capacity to deal with more input. That's, that's, that's something that has to be addressed, and so what the, the Victorian Government has been very concerned about it's got a, a pretty, uh, pretty aggressive renewable energy target. Its frustration is that it's not being able to get the transmission built to ensure that that, that extra capacity be, can, can be connected, and there's even been cases where people, developers and investors have progressed a long way down the track to build a solar farm or a wind farm and find that they're, either, they're not able to um, sell all of their output into the grid because the grid can't deal with their, their connection, either because there's just not enough capacity in the network or because the the style of electricity that you're feeding into the grid from, say, for example, a solar farm could potentially destabilise on a technical basis the voltage and frequency of the electricity, which is something that the technology the technology people, the, the power engineering people have to be concerned about. So th- those limitations are where the Victorian government's been frustrated that in their view, the national reform processes to connect all this stuff have fallen behind the ambitions of the state government to connect more wind and solar. And so there's a mismatch. And what this Victorian government's wanting to do is to some extent bypass the existing regulatory processes, and push through with having the new transmission and capacity, augmenting the transmission system, to make sure that it can deal with the extra renewables that the state government wants to connect.
5: But wouldn't that sort of add more chaos than it actually takes away?
2: Well, potentially for a while, yes. So that's why, you know, I think it's, um, I understand the, the state government's frustration here, but there is a risk that in, in doing this you could create some more problems. And so my preference would be um, that we deal with this to make sure that all those regulatory processes that we'll put in place to ensure that we don't cause some problems down the track, and those processes are still followed. And I think that the getting the balance right here is going to be important because the reason I say that is because we don't want to see a situation in which the influx of renewable energy uh, leads to problems um, more than it actually solves.
5: Just in regard to the uh, announcement made by Anthony albanese, is that achievable? Do you think zero by two
2: well, thousand and fifty well we are going to be this will sound a little bit pedantic Rob but he was he and others used the word net zero by two thousand and fifty so the interviewer David Spears on the ABC was talking about um, uh, net zero does that you know zero mean we can 't have any cows anymore by two thousand and fifty for example and uh, the answer is no, because we're talking about net zero. So, if we still have cows and we haven't fundamentally changed the um, their, the insides of the cow processes, so that you know cows are well known burpers and farters. I mean, particularly the burping is the challenge with uh, with greenhouse gas emissions. Then, if we are producing emissions from those those cows, then those emissions have to be offset somewhere else so someone else has to be effectively absorbing emissions. Now there's you know,
5: and, and briefly, Tony, there are yeah. some people who are working on the emissions Correct. from cows, which Absolutely. may bring them down anyway. So Absolutely. We you might not have a down. problem, as much as a problem as you think. Yeah,
2: and, and that's why it's important to have... Because I've spoken to many farmers, both dairy and cattle farmers, who would say, look, give us the incentive... And we will reduce the emissions from our from our livestock. We can do things that may not come down to zero, but right now, as you and I are talking, we're producing greenhouse gas emissions because we're we're breathing out um, CO2 in our in our breath. So you'll never get it down to everything down to zero. But ultimately, we will have to think about well, do we for the for the emissions that remain, assuming we haven't by then converted to you know vegan cows meat, then we will have to find a way of offsetting those emissions into other things.
0: Tony Wood, Director of Energy Programs at the Grattan Institute there, speaking with Rod Chambers. You're listening to On The Money around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Kevin Suarez.
1: You're listening to On The Money, where smart money listens right around Australia.
0: With bushfires burning and oceans rising, there is an increasing call for a shift to sustainable practices in all sectors of society. One area that is developing new and sustainable forms is urban planning. One example of this comes from the University of Technology, Sydney, whose latest building, UTS Central, has recently been awarded a five-star green rating for its sustainable design and operation. Ryan Stanton has this story. With its large glass
6: facade, twisting spire and modern design, UTS Central is a structure built to impress. But impressing people is not the only thing that the building was designed to do. UTS Central was designed from the ground up to be sustainable and efficient, something which its five-star green rating from the Green Building Council of Australia can attest to. But what goes into creating a sustainable building like this? To find out more, I spoke to Benjamin Duncan, head of sustainability at UTS, to ask him more about how much effort it took to craft UTS Central.
1: Okay, so it's really something that needs to be uh, planned and thought of very carefully from the design stage and the conceptual stage of the building planning. So I think... um, If you look back at um, the strategy of UTS uh, on sustainability, it really has actually a target to achieve a five star Green Star certification for each and every new building on campus. So, because of that target, it was very clear to all the stakeholders, all the people working on the project, that this needed to be achieved from the set go. So, we could brief all the uh, consultants and the team itself on uh, the sustainability objective for the building. But designing
6: sustainable buildings requires more than just an intent to do so from the outset. It also requires trade-offs and compromise, something which doesn't always come easy.
1: So if you look at... uh, the central building, you will have noticed that it's a beautiful, very open, very transparent building. And this um, has trade-offs. So from an energy point of view, it's very uh, challenging to make a glass building perform well on energy efficiency. However, as a university, we wanted to make sure that um, the building was transparent and open and um, was really um, enabling students to have a a good sense of well-being when operating in the building, when studying in the building. With the trade-offs required,
6: some may question what the price of sustainability may be. As Duncan notes, UTS is in a unique position to deal with the added cost.
1: Um, So, obviously... When looking at developing a sustainable building, you often need to make decisions um, to include certain features such as expensive plants and equipment that are going to help um, make the building perform better from an environmental point of view, for instance. So that's a capital expenditure that needs to be Um, committed to early on in uh, the construction of the building. And, yeah, so this is a trade-off, being able to demonstrate that this investment is going to then um, deliver... Returns in terms of the cost of operating the building over the long term. But we are in a very good position at UTS in the sense that uh, the university owns its buildings. So there is a definite incentive for UTS to make sure that the buildings are as environmentally sustainable as possible.
6: For businesses that aren't in the same position as UTS it may be harder to justify this logistical cost. But the logistics is only one part of why somebody may build something sustainably.
1: Well, I think there is an organisational responsibility. So wherever we can um, reduce the negative impacts of our uh, operations and also create a positive legacy then obviously we should always strive to do that. If designing a whole
6: new building isn't on the agenda, there's still ways to be sustainable. Here, Duncan notes one of the alternative ways UTS works to achieve these goals.
1: Uh, The things that we do uh, include, for example, looking at uh, the ways we treat waste on campus. So this is another one that's... um, an important uh, element of environmental performance that's um, important to take into account. Um, So obviously we look at ensuring that there are available infrastructure on campus to treat various types of waste that the university generates. And then we invest in processes to ensure that that waste is um, processed is in the most um, environmentally a beneficial way.
6: This goal can be seen in UTS Central, which has re trees on multiple levels and a sustainable plastics-free food court that has been well received by students and staff alike.
2: Look, I essentially think it's a good idea and um, it would be good to see more places uh, do something similar. It's a shame that more uh, buildings don't take this sort of unified approach.
4: Well, I think it's a good thing, it's better for the environment and I think it's better to introduce it now instead of waiting until later. Sustainability and everything, it's, it's amazing, yeah. They should, uh, they should push more, also like maybe um, no paper uh, in class or something like that, that everything is digital, so they could expand this, uh, like, yeah, across the university, not just at the food court here, yeah.
6: As Duncan mentions, these small steps and goals are also important when it comes to promoting sustainability.
1: I think it's important for people to uh, feel empowered that they have uh, the potential to actually make a difference in society and in the world. We can very easily be, be overwhelmed by the size and the magnitude of the challenges that are um, That we are faced with at the moment, climate change, for example, being one of those um, issues and challenge that people have sometimes difficulty to, you know, uh, get to grasp with. So acting sustainably, taking, you know, small steps in your day to day life actually empowers people to feel that they can make a difference. And they will then engage more broadly with their friends and peers and, um, you know, make that change have even more impact by influencing others. So this is really why I think everybody should take steps to act in a more sustainable way.
0: Benjamin Duncan, Head of Sustainability at UTS, ending that report by Ryan Stanton. That's all we have time for on On The Money this week. Tune in again next week to find out everything you need to hear about finance, business and the economy. Thanks to producers Veronica Alishina, Ryan Stanton and executive producer Roderick Chambers. On The Money is produced in the, st- in the studios of Radio 2SER for the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find all our shows and stories at... 2ser.com forward slash on the money. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. New episodes are coming out every week. To follow us on Twitter, look for on the money 2ser and find us on Facebook and Instagram for updates. I'm Kevin Suarez. We'll be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. Thanks for your company.